as entrepreneurs, all of us want to go out and make a difference. We're working really hard. We're charging ahead. But to do that well, we've got to make the right decisions. How do we make the right decisions? We've got to frame it and we've got to have great data to pull this together. Well, we live in a world of abundance. If we make the right decisions, we can deliver huge value for our clients and do extremely well by doing that. And I have someone who specializes in that area today. He's a serial entrepreneur and he's made his whole career about using data to make businesses even more effective. That's what every one of us wants to do so that we can accelerate our success. I'm John Bowen. We are at AESNation.com. Stay tuned. You'll be glad you did. Ordinary success? No way. You want amazing, remarkable, exceptional breakthroughs. Dig deep. Think bold. Drive hard. Watch yourself soar beyond your dreams. AESNation.com Ed and I am so excited to have you. You and I met at Abundance 360. I was kind of blown away with some of the comments and thoughts that you had uh, during the uh, meeting. Uh, we kind of got talking about different things and ran into each other at the airport. I go, I got to share your insights with our audience. So first of all, thank you for taking the time today. John, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You know, it was it was amazing to see the evidence of abundance that Peter was showing before every session. And it's kind of makes things that are otherwise unbelievable, believable, because you see the evidence in the form of data. And uh, I'm looking forward to speaking with uh, your audience about data and the role it can play in helping to make uh, better for businesses. So thank you for having me. No, it is great. And uh, let's, let's go in. You know, I mean, I don't know, you know, as a child, uh, how you woke up and you wanted to, I don't think, you know, you said, geez, I'm going to be a serial entrepreneur and my, I'm going to use my understanding of data to build great businesses. You know, how did you get to where you are today? I mean, because you, you are truly a successful serial entrepreneur. Yeah, so uh, my dad was the first educated person in his family. So education was very important to him. And therefore, it was important to me. Uh, and so I spent my high school being very successful as a student and then going and getting an engineering degree from Johns Hopkins and uh, getting doing some graduate work from Boston University on, in computer engineering. And then when I got into the workplace, I realized I wasn't a very good engineer. So what I started seeing was these engineering principles, whether it's a flow diagram or um, you know a circuit, the principles that apply to engineering apply to business. So most of my career has been using engineering principles and problem-solving techniques uh, in business. And the trick there is to find the right data, find the right current for a circuit diagram or the right fluid for a flow diagram. And I've had some success with that across multiple industries. So that uh, I did that as a consultant or as an employee for the first half of my career and then decided I was uh, done working for other people and started my first company about 20 years ago. Haven't looked back. No, it's, it is. It's, it's funny where we 
start out, I, I started out as a pilot in the Navy, and I thought I wanted to be a pilot. And then I found out I really didn't like flying. <laughs> so, so, you know, but I had some skills that were learned during that way that really, uh, you know, using the math and the finance, uh, well, engineering background and finance to get into financial services and make a difference. And, you know, this is a journey we're all on and as serial entrepreneurs, we're, we're doing it. I want to go to some of the lessons, you know, you shared. I'm going to go a little out of order than what we talked about in the pre, just because I, I think this will fit better is, you know, you talk about systems and, you know, so many of the entrepreneurs and usually the number one thing we all focus on is the client experience. And we get going and we're good technicians, you know, good engineers, we're good financial people, we're good widget makers, whatever it is. And we really get focused on the client experience. And the client experience is, is so important, but oftentimes we neglect the business model. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and this is not limited to somebody in a startup. I see it over and over again that people have successful businesses, but they limit their ability to deliver and magnify that value because of the business model. Share with us some of the experiences that you've had here. Yeah, so playing on the earlier examples I said, um, oftentimes uh, I encourage uh, entrepreneurs to spend as much time on the business model as they do on the product service offering and the client experience. So using my analogy, you know, it's one thing to build a pipeline. You better make sure there's fluid going through the pipe at the end of the day. Or if you're going to make the best circuit on the planet and there's no current going through it, you're going to be in trouble. So in many ways, they focus on the design of the circuit or the pipeline as if the current and the uh, oil are abundant. And in some cases, they aren't. It's as important to know what you're bringing over so the currency of business, which is you know, the business model, is as important as the solution or service or the innovation that you're offering. And I think many times uh, entrepreneurs miss that. And, and especially engineers, what happens is if they start to struggle with sales, they say, oh, I need a better product. And oftentimes, it's a better understanding of their business model or their customer to see the value chain correctly. So I encourage uh, entrepreneurs and executive teams to spend as much time, no more, no less, but as much time on the business model as they do on the product or offer strategy. Yeah, I think many of us think of it as you know, the better mousetrap. You know, if we have a better mousetrap, that's going to be enough and people are going to flock to us. And you know, with all the noise in the marketplace, no matter where you are as an entrepreneur, what you're bringing out to the market, there is more noise than ever before. And there are more choices. So you not only do you have to differentiate yourself, but you have to be distinctive in your message to get out there. And then what I, I see it all the time where entrepreneurs, you know, they've got a great solution. I mean, they, they really do have something but they haven't spent the time to create the systemic way of attracting the right customers or right clients to them. Yeah. So, so um, another example of that is in how you market things, right? So the same product or offer will resonate differently to different audiences. So this is where uh, behavioral marketing, uh, which I've been a student of for most of my career, comes into play. You know, if you're making an offer to a CFO, about your product, you better focus on how it's going to save them money. And if you're making the same offer to a head of operations, you better focus on 
what the efficiency gain from an operational perspective is. And if you're speaking with their IT group, you better talk about either how great the technology or how it's risk, you know, that there aren't a lot of risks with it. So understanding the audience and their perception of the information will nuance the message that you lead with. And also how you structure the offer can change based on who the primary signatory is. So if you're selling to a CFO, it's a very different sales process than if you're selling to the head of marketing. And, and understanding those behaviors becomes as important as the, the differentiators in the product or the offering itself. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, what I, I find uh, over and over again is it's getting the, you know, understanding, you know, exactly what you're saying is get that understanding of who your market is, who's the niche that you're serving, and then, and also get clarity. We, we get caught up in all the processes we put together, our own solution. You really are not selling that solution you're selling the results, the end result. And that's going to be different, as you've mentioned, you know, whether it's the, you know, the technology, the uh, CFO, the CEO, everybody's going to want something different. And this is so important. Um, let, me, let me take a step in the next one that we were talking about earlier, and it's raising capital. Um, I, you know, we were at a capital raising meeting where we were at Abundance 360, and we started talking and that your, some of your comments kind of uh, got me interested in you know, reaching out to you to explore potentially getting together today and share your thoughts with AESNation.com because, you know, as entrepreneurs, um, raising capital is something that's kind of interesting is, you know, we, we see it as when we're getting started, it's something that we want to do because we need the capital to get going. But, you know, for this, this interview, I mean, our podcast, we're at the $5 million. We're, we're looking usually at successful entrepreneurs who already got a good business. So, you know, it's not startup capital, but what they're, they're, they're looking at maybe taking some of the chips off the table or getting some money so that they can, you know, accelerate their growth. And you've got some experience raising capital. And and kind of the good and the bad. Maybe uh, share with our fellow entrepreneurs some of your, from your perspective. So I'll start with the story, right? So my first company, um, we were profitable, um, about three hundred thousand dollars a month uh, in revenue, over two hundred thousand in profit. When we became interesting in terms of raising capital. And we ended up raising some money just to cushion potential downstream because there was a, a cash flow differential between when we got paid and when we had to pay out certain things. And so we wanted a little bit of a cushion. Raised $600,000 for um, a minority stake. You know, we focused on valuation. What we missed were some of the covenants that came with that valuation. And while that 600000 never left the bank because we were profitable already, they had more control of our board in terms of veto rights and how we could exit the business than the three founders put together that um, owned a majority of the company. So that was an interesting lesson. And so uh, at first that was, you know, coming from the entrepreneurial side, that presented some problems. Now, having gone into it as an investor, I see the wisdom of the way that money structured that deal. And the reality is, for entrepreneurs, if you're going to raise capital, whether it's a dollar or $100 million, for 1% equity or 51% equity, 
from a fiduciary perspective, from a responsibility perspective, and from a liability perspective, you have lost control of your company. Now, if everything goes well, you can still make decisions and things, but you have an obligation to that money that means it's generally the recourse of last resort. So if you are making money and profitable and you don't have a very clear use of this capital and how it's going to affect your valuation, I would say, you know, be very careful about uh, seeing only the money in your account as the consequence because capital that's put to work in that way has um, rights and it comes at a price and it is usually, especially venture capital, is the most expensive money out there. Yes, it validates you. Yes, it creates access to a network of people. But, you know, really look into the details of the other side of that equation because it's not just about the money you get. And if you don't have a reason to use that money to grow the business, uh, if it is to take money off the table, for example, there are probably other better ways to do it, maybe through dividend distribution or other things that would allow you to continue to do what got you there. I mean, at $5 million, you're successful. You know, you've gotten further than 99% of the startups that are out there. So really, you're attractive in that position, so be careful how you raise the money and, and what the use of that money is for. No, and, I, and I can, I'm going to go ditto that too. Uh, having been uh, uh, raised, my, I've been on both sides of the transactions many times now, and and it is really an issue that you want to be extremely careful about because it's enticing uh, as you have traction and people will come to you and want to invest with you. And I can still remember a single digit percentage owner when we were selling a business that was very successful and they got a good return on investment on their capital. And they had had something, uh, there was part of the agreement that we didn't understand that they could have held the deal up. Matter of fact, they did. Uh, yeah. And we had to, uh, I mean, threaten legal action at that time. And it was, um, you know, it's just not when you're, you're putting, <laughs> you're trying to sell to somebody to have legal, you know, the buyers aren't overly excited entering into a lawsuit. So, you know, be hesitant. Now, on the other hand, I've raised capital and we've really grown and we created all kinds of liquidity and, you know, there was a reason to do it. So there's a right and wrong part. But I, I do like in, uh, the, uh, the whole fiduciary thought that you mentioned. Yeah, and, and this is the thing. It's not one-sided. It's not the entrepreneurs get taken advantage of the capital. As a fiduciary, you have to protect the money. So when I've gone and invested in other people's companies, I ask for covenants that I would never accept as an entrepreneur. It doesn't make me a hypocrite. It makes it makes me accountable to the money, right? If I'm going to ask somebody to put their money behind a venture that I'm backing, I have to have the ability to control the outcome for the protection of the money. I need to have a seat at the table. So this isn't a right or wrong issue. It's just recognized that it, you know, it's as much of a partnership as a co-founder or as a spouse. And the most important thing is you really want to find a partner that is philosophically aligned with your goals and not just look at the terms of the money. And generally, you know, if I'm aligned with a person, I will not be the best deal they have. 
but in the long run, run I will be the best deal because because my understanding of their goals is going to help them reach them as opposed to putting myself in an adversarial situation with them. And, and same on the investment side. I don't want to invest in uh, uh, an entrepreneur or startup that isn't aligned with the principles of data-driven decisions, uh, uh, you know, eating what you hunt, getting to revenue quickly, putting as much energy into the business model as you do into the business. If you're not willing to do those things, I'm not your guy. So it is a match.com exercise. You want to find the right investor uh, for you. And a large part of that has to do with personality and um, uh, alignment of values. Okay, and, um, this is something that you know I see over and over again when we're putting together deals. And, uh, and when I, I have sold a few businesses along the way and then for a while, I was part of a senior team where we, were, we did 28, you know, fairly significant acquisitions. And, you know, as a knowledgeable buyer, and we do a fair amount of M&A work in the financial services side, you want to think of, you know, whichever side you're on, that, you know, if something's properly papered, you know, we're talking about fiduciary, but what's happening is if they write the agreements well, they're going to force you to be at the table, no matter whether it's the investor or the uh the entrepreneur and you got to take these things seriously force at the table means you can't take any major action without everybody at the table being in agreement and this is you know one of the things as entrepreneurs getting you know you've been an entrepreneur you've been an investor like i have as well and and i don't know as an entrepreneur i don't want to give up control of that decision making from my senior team unless there's somebody really aligned with us and this is such a big deal yeah, that's a great point. So it's 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 not really about whether you give up that control. It's that if you're going to be, if you're going to shift from singular control to group control, make sure the people in that group are aligned with your principles and your goals. Okay, yeah, the goals of the company. And that's the other thing that sometimes happens with entrepreneurs. There's an ego factor that doesn't apply, right? I mean. I, I tell entrepreneurs, think of the company as your child. You want the best for your child, but you are eventually going to let that child grow up and go into the world and be the best that it can be. So even if you don't recognize it, your job as a, as a founder is to be a steward and to eventually relinquish control. So you want to have that mindset of, of raising a child, not this is my... Um, this is about me and my ego and my company, and you know, it's it, without me, it's useless. Um, a lot of times, that's the difference between sort of a, a, a lifestyle business and a sustainable business. Yeah, and, and this is something that I'm mean, encourage everybody that's watching the podcast or listening to the podcast is think about it. You know, what do you want? Because there's no right or wrong. You can have a lifestyle boutique or you can build an enterprise, but they're very different. And they're different animals, and it's, you're going to have different strategic partners along the way, and you know, and it's important to be do it on purpose. You know, be really clear on this. And one of the things about clarity that you know, is unique uh, to your skill set is data. And I want to go. You know, one of the when I'm looking, uh, I've only I, I, for financial markets, I was really data. Tense. There were times that I could push a button, move a billion dollars, 
and just the data I loved. But I did. I wasn't that data sensitive in business. And over the last really several years, I've become extremely uh, you know, the ability to measure everything. Technology has just improved so much with bandwidth, with the you know, the cloud services, with the um, just the processing power. It's amazing what you can do. What I'd love to hear from you is, you know, how you see your fellow entrepreneurs really leveraging data to make informed decisions that are going to be, help their businesses be more successful. Yeah, so, um, you know, the Internet definitely changed a lot of things. So, again, a little bit of background. Uh, engineering principles applied to business data. So I've had success in telecom, uh, uh, in the automotive, where we created a visibility application for the entire supply chain without violating any sort of negotiating rights, uh, did it in the media industry where we created spot uh, demand markets for television and radio, which, which actually was a spectacular failure because the market wasn't looking for that data. Okay, And there's a big difference between data and information. So you don't need a lot of data to make a decision. You need the right data. So the challenge is looking for the right data, and it's very easy to get um, into the position where you're manipulating data to be, see the outcome you want. So the key to avoiding that is what I call telemetry data. An example of telemetry data is your heartbeat, right? Your heart is beating, and it lets you know you're alive. But to a doctor or an um, EKG, it can tell you whether you've had a heart attack, whether you're under stress, what your rate is, whether you're you know, uh, about to have a stroke, if you've had a stroke, all of these things just from measuring that electronic signal, right? And so it's the knowledge of the pattern that makes that data useful and actionable. As businesses, there are not a lot of patterns that we can look at. So most of my career has been really focused on what's the pattern. So let's start with customers, because all of your all of your uh, all of your listeners have customers, mm -hmm. and it's looking at those customers and saying, okay, from a behavioral perspective, how are they grouped? And according to um, the Eisenberg brothers' future now, there's sort of four categories of buyers. There's you know methodical, humanistic, competitive, and spontaneous. And the methodicals and the humanistics need a lot of information before they make a decision. The competitors and the spontaneous need very little. They make very quick de decisions. The methodicals and the competitors use logic, and the humanistics and the spontaneous use emotion. If you know just that, and you know that your easiest value for your offering is logic-based and takes a while to explain, your primary buyer is going to be a methodical. And what nine times out of 10 I'll see is that your marketing is uh, oriented towards competitive or humanistic, not your primary thing. So this is one application where you can take the existing data you have, analyze it, and there are plenty of people that can help you do that, and look at it from an alignment of customer value to your product benefits. Yeah. And in, in that alone, I've usually been able to double people's conversion rate, okay? Very different conversation when we're thinking about um, satisfaction, you know? And, and so how you can manipulate these things or at least understand them so you can 
find your best customers. That's the other thing that often happens is these businesses' best customers are the ones they ignore. You know, the ones that pay every month, that pay a premium, that never fight with them on price, never want freebies. Those customers, because there's no feedback loop for them, are the ones that get ignored. So that's one example of how data can help with the business model and the sales process. Um, in, in, with technology, data is available in all of these industries. So, you know, my current company, Naya, focuses on energy. The reason is the Internet of Things has made, a, you know, a beachhead of new data being made available in that arena. So uh, as, as you look for new opportunities, you know, the mobile phone industry created a whole world of data. Twitter created a whole access to what's trending so that it's a much better read of what's getting mind share than, than uh, the newspaper used to be. And so all of these things become important. They also can be overwhelming. So it's not just about data, it's patterns in data that make it easy for you to make decisions. And once you have the patterns, trust the pattern to make the decision. And then no matter how much data you get, I don't think the answer is going to change. So, you know, don't, don't continue to analyze the same data over and over and over again, hoping for a different outcome. You know, uh, in fact, one of the slides we had at the Abundance 360 showed this perfectly well. As soon as your number of data points gets to about 1,000, you have enough data to make a 90% probability answer. And then it doesn't change whether you get to 10 million. So that, that, that large number theory applies a lot to data. Yeah, I, I do quarterly surveys of different areas of financial advisors. I do one a year of entrepreneurs and then another in the affluent side. And, and I'll tell you, it's just, you know, what you're saying just so resonates because we see over and over again the ability to understand our clients well, the data, you know, an example, um, financial advisors are interested in working with people with money, surprisingly. And we define affluent as someone with a million or more financial assets. And we found that 84% of them wanted to connect emotionally first and then justify through logic you know, the engagement. Well, what did the financial advisors all want to do? Is they wanted to convince people how they could make smarter decisions about their money. They were armed with great insights and could help. But when they saw the data, I mean, our, our coaching clients, it's, it's just so much more successful on average, over 35% um, growth each year by just doing that. And, and you know, the, I mean, we can go on and on examples of data, but this is, I think, in every single business, if we can understand our clients, I love the, you know, looking at our existing clients and, you know, you know Pareto principle for most businesses you know, 20% of our clients are going to generate 80% of the profitability. But what do we do? We ignore them. Well, boy, having a campaign to really in, engage them in the business and then ultimately, depending on your business, to introduce you to other like-minded people uh, can be huge. We see that over and over again. So, I, I mean, I love data. Well, if there's another application for your $5 million listeners and up. You're now in the growth pain, right? You can't do it all yourself. So you need a team. And what you'll find is that team uh, it sometimes comes to work with an emotional uh, basis or a political basis. You start to see politics creep in. And with success, you start to see some of these problems. 
Well, data is the great equalizer. And if you, if you manage through data, it becomes very easy to set up a row, results-only work environment, and to create a structure where it's not about who's my favorite person, it's what, the, what does the data say? And so, so, so now you're, and, and you know, weaving this all the way back to this fiduciary responsibility we have to the company, you're now being a good steward of the company and it's not so much about your personal desires and what you want or what any particular uh, vice president or direct report wants. It's what's, what does the data say is the best for the company? And, um, you know, not, not to the exclusion of your instinct, your intuition, and your, your, your judgment, but as a, as a compliment. Well, one of the things that, you know, without data, it's easy to get political and you can pick your favorite person. And I think of marketing where it's a little harder to measure sometimes. You put your finger up in the air and, you know, test the win and say, hey, this is working. Well, with data, it's really obvious. And then the other part is you can do split tests on so many things. So instead of debating it endlessly around the table, let's try both with today's tools. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's, let's go to the, next, the first segment here. Book of the day. Yeah, what would you, uh, uh, you know, can, um, want to recommend to your fellow entrepreneurs, you know, as a book that you've read recently that you think would help them be even more successful? Well, um, you know, I, I read a lot. I'm on a lot of planes, so I listen to and read a lot of books. Um, but the one that I keep coming back to for zero to one entrepreneurs is The Art of the Start uh, by Guy Kawasaki. It's, it's an easy read, it, you know, isn't complicated in terms of the analytics, but there's some great truths there. And when you're when you're sort of at a stage and plateauing, the one I like is really um, uh, waiting for your cat to bark, which is about a better understanding of how to connect with your customers, understand the persuasion architecture, and implement it in the digital realm we all live in. So, the first book is you know. How to make quick decisions because I think one of the keys for entrepreneurs, we're always getting ideas, and one of the most important things to success is the ideas not to follow up on. It's it's how quick can you get to a no, okay? And I think the art of the start does that very effectively. It gives you very simple guidelines by which to know if this is worthy of your time. And then <clears throat> waiting for your cat to bark is a marketing uh, uh, lens on what is considered, um, in my opinion, the best way to do anything in terms of digital marketing, which is the persuasion architecture from the Eisenberg brothers and Future Now. Um, and it's worked for me time and time again. Uh, but the principles of waiting for your cat to bark is really back to test, understand your data, understand the personas of your audience, and then tailor your message to uh, you know, to be naturally digestible by the personas that are most likely to buy your product. And, and it's fascinating because we're so often wrong when we go with our gut, and I think this is a good way to sort of check that. Well, I love the title. Let me put it up on the screen. I will be downloading it uh, very quickly after. Uh, I, was, I have not read this book before. Waiting for Your Cat to Bark, Persuading Customers When They Ignore Marketing. And I can tell you, Almost all customers ignore marketing. So that this is a wide range of problems for all entrepreneurs. And uh, 
Uh, look forward to a good read. Thank you. Let me go to the next one. It's your applications for the day, the smartphone. And you had one that's kind of a, uh, it's a, you know, we were at Abundance 360. I don't know about you, but I picked up a whole bunch of business cards. How, how, would, how would we get those into uh, da usable data? So th there's a story and there's the answer. The answer is I use a product called CamCard, which is a uh, uh, card capture uh, app on your phone. And the thing I love about it is its recognition. So if I pull up this card, you know, um, the card on here, if I, if I, I don't know if you can see that, but it can read all types of cards and I've had success with Chinese cards, with Chinese characters, as well as uh, Spanish and English cards. And the nice thing is I take a picture of the card. Actually, I don't even take a picture. I hold the camera over it. It finds the edges, takes a picture, and it's very good at collecting the data off of the card and standardizing it. And then it syncs to the cloud, and from the cloud it appears instantaneously on my iPhone and in my Google accounts and everywhere else. So for me, there were two problems. One, what do I do with all these cards? And then where did I put that contact in? Is it in my phone or is it here? And as great as Apple is with integration, Apple and Google don't play well. And our mail servers with Google and our, our phones are, are typically iOS. So I've struggled with that problem. And uh, if you are using any sort of a customer relationship uh, uh uh, system uh, like Salesforce or uh, we use Sugar, um, we've actually been able to export and send these things into Sugar as well. So uh, when I identify the type of prospect it is across one of my businesses or for an uh, investment opportunity, I can get better about loading that stuff. And and it's kind of nice to see the card visually because um, you know there are times where you can't. Um, um, you, you know, it, it actually shows you their address on a map, so you can click one click for direction. So personally, this has worked well for me. And now the story, which is I've been struggling with sort of contact management ever since I let go of Outlook uh, back in about 2007. Uh, and, and that had to do with multiple emails, multiple businesses trying to segregate that information. And I had an assistant uh, who was from Brazil, didn't speak a lot of English, but was as connected to her phone as anyone I've ever met. And I gave her the task of finding me the right app for this. And she must have downloaded and tried 40 of them. And, and this is in the course of a week, less than a week. You know, she's doing all her other stuff. And she came up with this one, which is not one of the more popular ones, but it worked perfectly. And the fact that she needed the multilingual piece it was one of those lessons where if you let somebody run with the project as they see fit, oftentimes they'll think of things that you hadn't. So a little shout out to the idea of being a steward as opposed to a, a micromanager. Um, I didn't give her any real parameters, and she far exceeded my expectations. So thank you, Patty. For no, that. That's great. Let's go to resources. And you are, you know, one of the things that you're doing right now in one of your businesses is on energy. And when we think of costs, you know, energy costs are oftentimes uh, substantial for some of our businesses. Uh, it's significant for everyone. 
But you know, you what are you doing there? And then I'm gonna I'll put up your website, uh, Energy as well, and tell us a little bit about that. So remember, my background's in data. So why am I in energy? It's because energy has become uh, data aware. Uh, with the Internet of Things, IoT, devices have an ID and they can do certain things to connect with the cloud. So what it creates is an opportunity. And I, I found this hardware company, Akita, that we've partnered with that measures very precise, precisely how devices use electricity. And they do large power devices as well as small power devices. But this is not the home automation level. It's real power consumers. So imagine sticking something on your air conditioner that can s sample how it's using electricity you know, at the frequency of which alternating current is going. So 500 times a second, you're getting data, and you're seeing how alternating current is used by an air conditioner. And when you see changes in that pattern, something changed, right? And with our pattern recognition system of NIA, what we've been able to do is start to identify patterns that tell us, oh, this air conditioner is sick. This air conditioner has a bad $3 capacitor and it's using $100 in extra electricity a month. And when you explode that out times thousands of devices, you can make a real difference. So that's one side of the problem, which is monitoring the health of energy consuming devices using uh, you know, the equivalent of the heartbeat of electricity. And then the other side is, how many people here get an electricity bill and actually know how they're being charged for electricity? I, I'd be surprised if any of your listeners do anything but just pay it. Because we think, okay, we got to pay for it, and there's no choices, so we just pay it as a blind item. Well, the reality is, if you understand how you're charged for electricity, and I can help you with that, and you understand how your devices are using power, you can optimize that system to the tune of anywhere between 10 and 40% in actual reduce, reduction in energy costs. Some of it's in usage. Most of it is in knowing when to turn things on where energy is cheaper. And then you also get benefits in terms of maintenance costs. So if instead of having to go and check an air conditioner every day to listen for the bearings to be out of whack to know that it's in trouble, if I had, you know, NIA monitoring the system, I would get an alert every time there was a change in the pattern. And some of those alerts would be meaningful and others would not. So we, we, we offer that as a service and the more data points we collect, the more we get smart about the patterns and we surface only the problems to the appropriate people. So maintenance requests would go to maintenance, uh, opportunity for a different rate plan would go to the finance department. And through that process, um, we're able to realize significant savings on electricity costs. Uh, this, is, this is great. I mean, it's a super application of what you were talking about on data. And, you know, the, the power of technology, the world of abundance that we live in today, it's, it's really allowing us to do things, you know, so amazing. And you're, you're making it happen. Let me go to the last segment. I'm going to walk away with three major ones. The very first one is, you know, our focus. It is so important, you know, you got to do two things really well in business. Number one is you've got to have a great client experience. But we talked about at length, you know, that the, the need to really 
think through a business model that we can scale up and systematize it. And it's it, and particularly if we're you know we're having success, but we want to go to that next level or skip a few levels. This is so important to make time to work on the <coughs> business. Caden, uh, you know, you suggested that we do kind of equal weighting on both. I agree. Second thing is raising capital. This is a serious issue. You know, you know most entrepreneurs spend all the time on valuation and we forget the consequences of having capital and that need to be a fiduciary. Um, you know, we don't want to go in lightly, but when we do need capital to really accelerate our success, we've got to have the right strategic or certainly financial investors that are aligned with us. And then lastly, we heard a whole bunch of discussion on data. Data, you know, there's no shortage of data everywhere. We want to take that data, make it into knowledge, get real understanding of the, the KPIs so that we can go ahead and make the right decisions. You know, as entrepreneurs, we've got to take this information and go out, execute. Uh, great insights. Uh, okay, that, yeah, I really appreciate and I'm encourage all our fellow entrepreneurs, you know, go to the website. You can see right above me, asnation.com. Go there. We're going to have the transcript. We're going to have the show notes, all the links of everything we talked about. And go out, share this information with your fellow entrepreneurs, but also execute. Your clients and your future clients are counting on you. We wish you the best of success. Exceptional, remarkable breakthroughs. AESNation.com.